welcome to the Band of Brothers podcast. Today's date is February the 7th, 2008, and we are in week 17 of the Quest for Authentic Manhood. This week, our teacher is Don Munton, the singles pastor at Houston's First Baptist Church. We hope you enjoy the lesson. I, have, I tell folks this uh, often, but I have the best job in the, uh, in the church. I have the best job uh, around. I, I get to work with uh, some young people who have chosen. You know, oftentimes in, in youth ministry, folks have been, the decision's been made for them. Oftentimes in college, there's still kind of that in-betweens kind of that's taking place. But within a uh, single adult world, everybody has made that choice to be there. And I don't view single adults as... Uh, uh, different. Um, I view them as adults that are, that are Christians that happen to be single. So their singleness is not the most important thing. It's just simply the circumstance of life at that point. One day they'll be adults and they'll most likely, uh, hopefully they'll become a Christian and most likely they'll be married. And so the circumstance of life doesn't change. I tell single adults the worst thing, the only thing worse than being single and alone is to be married and alone. And so oftentimes we run to something but not necessarily in the right way and so uh, oftentimes there's these hurts that kind of come up and we try to fill them quickly. We try to get those things. And um, so uh, I try to make sure that we deal with this. I, in fact, let me, let me even change a little bit of what we speak about today, make sure you hear this, that um, the definition of manhood is not a definition for a husband or a father. Those are also part of the manhood definition, but part of the definition of a manhood is just for a man. And so I've been teaching a course here since I've been here about 10 years now. And uh, as a, a single adult, uh, ministry, I want the, the young men that are coming in to understand that they are men completely, 100%. They're not waiting for something for that manhood to start. And so uh, it is a real privilege to be able to minister that way. Uh, you know, for the first 13, 12 weeks, 13 weeks, you really look completely at unpacking. At about week 13, we start something new in which we say God can do something in our lives and we add something potentially to. Uh, potentially, you even saw someone here with a suitcase opening it up and t- unpacking things out. I came from a very good home. Uh, my dad, though, deals with this portion of the definition. This was the struggle of his life. And so as, as we look at this, this area uh, was an area that he struggled in. Now, my dad uh, raised four boys. He was a boilermaker, a man's man. So, yes, I am a son of a boilermaker. And some people like to, it's kind of an odd way to say that. But it's, uh, you know, the only thing you know about boilermakers is that they uh, are uh, construction workers, maybe. You might know that. They uh, also have an alcoholic drink named after them. And they have a football team kind of named after him. And so boilermakers are tough men. My dad was both a tough man, but was beyond being a tough man. He was a believer in Jesus Christ, and, and that ruled his life. That controlled his life completely. And so I got to watch a father do an unbelievable job. All four of us boys are very involved in vocational uh, ministry. Uh, two of us are in vocational uh, ministry. I have a brother, a pastor, than myself here. My uh, oldest brother is a judge in Missouri, and as a judge he is uh, also at a small church that they're involved with. He is the uh, minister for music uh, there, so they don't have to pay for someone else at a small church, so he's that. Uh, my youngest brother is a doctor. My youngest brother is a deacon in his church and is very active at their church. And so uh, my parents uh, were not perfect in any way. My parents did the best they could, uh, but there were many things in which still, even with the best our parents can do, there's still uh, parts of that in which we need things added to us. And so this morning we'll start adding the definition of what a man is. We'll start looking at those things. Well, uh, 
When we are going to talk about this manhood definition, uh, two weeks ago, Pastor Greg, and then last week, Eric, did a great job sharing with us about the manhood for the book of Genesis. Okay? So we look back. We're going to finish that looking back and start looking forward coming up here real quick. Uh, we learned uh, these two things. Without God and without God's original blueprint, manhood can never be all what God intended it to be. So we need both without God and without God's blueprint. Both of those things are critical to look at. What does God do in my life? Add to. What does this blueprint look like in my life? Add to. And so we unpack so we have room to put what God intends for us to be. And so today uh, we'll start uh, this. Uh, in fact, here's a, I want to show a slide. This is one thing that manhood is not spoken about in, in Genesis, but might add to your manhood plan. Um, you might look at manhood. Being a man is, is no easy matter, but having a lot of guns and ammunition sure helps things out. So there's kind of a a little help there, um, guns and ammo. If you have, you know, you're not sure about stuff, you might go out and get some guns and ammo, and that might be that might be important to go out and shoot some clay pigeons and go out and. In fact, uh, we got my dad turns 80 this year, just turned 80, and so we're gonna go out, all four of us boys, to West Texas, and we're gonna shoot guns and eat grub and talk about games since we no longer are young enough to play all those games any longer. We're gonna talk about games and watch games and do that. So the three G's of manhood, you know, grub, guns, and games. So uh, we're gonna go do that together and just enjoy one another. And so um, today you will start the fulfillment of what a biblical manhood is all about. In two weeks, when someone asks you, what is a man, I hope that you'll be able to quickly tell them what that, mean, what that means biblically. You'll be able to give them a definition of what it looks like to be a man. I truly believe that men desiring to be godly men need godly men in their lives to really learn what being a godly man is all about. I mean, let me say it a different way. You are not a disciple of Jesus Christ until you're a disciple maker. In a sense, as a man, one of the most critical aspects of who you are is what you give away, not what you learn or what you keep. It is what you give away. So part of, of this manhood idea is that as we receive things, critical to this is that we put it to practice in what we do. Uh, James talks about that very clearly. That, listen, what do we do? And so very critical is that we give things away. I believe this next clip will give a glimpse into the importance of having solid men involved in our lives so that when disaster happens, the other man can catch us, so to speak. You might want to watch, you might want to even sing along with this, and you might even want to cry as we watch uh, Cletus take the wheel. Fishing last Friday on a lake in Mississippi in the humid summer heat. On a boat with my best friend Cletus, who was sleeping in the back seat. Well, the bikes were slow and we were running low on chips and Gatorade. It'd been a long, hard day. I felt the tug on the line and I didn't pay attention. Spinning way too fast. Before I knew it, I was staring at a ten-pound shiny bass. When I tried to pull the fish inside, I pulled a muscle in my upper thigh. I was so scared, I threw my rod up in the air.
<laughs> Let's take the reel. Okay, there we go. That's your little spoof off of Jesus. Take the take the wheel. But uh, just kidding. I was part of that was very very real though. As we give our life away, uh, hopefully it won't be sitting in a swing singing about a guy in our life. But um, there will be many times in which it's very critical that we have other men, possibly very very much yourself, who's giving your life away, who's involved in people's lives. So let's wrap up Genesis first, and we'll start, then we'll start on a definition. Let's first go to some uh, slide five. Key reminders. Men are created by God to be social and spiritual leaders. Men are created by God to be social and spiritual leaders. When men abandon this pursuit, or when this pursuit is taken away from them, chaos ensues. So we are created for this very critical part. This has nothing to do with, again, marriage. Marriage is a, a key point that we put this into. It's a, it's, a, it's a place we put this to practice. Let me tell you another spot. If you are a single adult here, the number one place you put this to practice is in your church family. This is where you put it to practice. It is like this great place to prepare for. It's a great place to give away. Men, here's my, how my dad says it, 80 years old now, and he's done this for since he was a 17-year-old boy. He got saved when he was nine. He, he, as he teaches Sunday school class, he went to, two, went to World War II and then went to Korean War. But each time when he would come back, he would teach Sunday school classes. Sometimes it would be young, young boys. Sometimes it would be older men. Now he has this older class. When he comes into the class, he simply says this. I'm going to be here 44 weeks out of 52. You can count on being here, guys. I'll be here and I'll have my lesson prepared. I'd like to ask for you to join me in preparing your lesson also. I'd like us to discuss God's Word, to look at God's Word, and see how God might want to change us today. 80 years old. And so as he starts his year as a class, he sets up for them. Here's what you can count on me. Here's how I'm going to socially be involved in your life. I'm going to spiritually be involved in your life so that in your life, chaos does not have the opportunity. So God tells us clearly in Genesis that at the core of a masculine being is a unique and special kind of leadership. We can go through life and accomplish a lot, but if we fail to incorporate these social and spiritual dimensions of leadership into our masculinity, then our manhood will always feel incomplete. You may say, boy, I feel incomplete. Possibly it's because of these two things. I, I, since I'm not complete all I want to be or all that I'd like to be, and so possibly those two things are there. There's a unique passage that God writes about to Israel that is found in Isaiah. God's punishment of the men's rebellion was that Israel would be ruled by boys. Now, I'm not sure this is that far away from Israel. This may be more possibly where we are in America today. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove the mighty men, the warriors, the judge, and the, and the, and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50, the honorable men. See, real men are going to be taken out of Israel. And I will make mere lads their princesses, and capricious children will rule over them. And the people will be oppressed, each one by another, and each one by his neighbor. The youth will storm against the elder, and the inferior against the honorable. When a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our ruler, and these ruins will be under your charge. He will protest on that day and say, I will not be your healer. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen. The oppression of their faces bears witness against them, and they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. O my people, their oppressors are children, and women rule over them. Isaiah 3, 1 through 12. This is what is seen when real men don't step up. It's a very clear passage. Children become the oppressor. Children rule the family. Children rule the society. And in so doing, chaos ensues. 
Let's look at our inner cities, possibly our suburbs and even our small towns. Men become confused. They become directionless, don't they? They become troubled. As this happens in men's lives, then the women and the children suffer. And when the women and the children hurt, the women fight back. The women will. And oftentimes we accuse them of doing things, but oftentimes it's just simply because there's a void that is there. And our family life is harmed and our children are hurt. The number one fear of a sixth grader is this. Is my daddy going to leave my mommy? Number one, no close second. Is my home stable? Or is my dad going to fulfill his commitment? Will he be there? Will he stay with me? Can I count on him? So I truly believe this. As men go, so goes the life of society. Let me break this down a little bit further, though. As the men go, so goes First Baptist. As the men of this church choose or not choose what they will, what they will do, if we choose not to follow God, not to step up, chaos ensues at First Baptist. There are things that go on and you think, I wish First Baptist would do da 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 Possibly those things are openings for you to say, you know what, I am First Baptist. I will step forward. I will take that role. I will be the one who fills that gap. And so oftentimes we remove ourselves from this and we think, well, I can't do anything about it. Let me tell you, Eric, like a few leaders, I'm, I'm open to leaders all the time. I have uh, next 16, in 16 months, I have 120 people that will marry out of the seventh department, out of the young married department. They're going to move into the young married department. You think those 120 men or 60 men are going to be wanting mentors? Absolutely. They've never been through marriage before, most of them. They, they don't know what to do next. They've never been there. They're looking for some men who'll step forward and say, yeah, let me tell you. I've, let me tell you my failings. Let me tell you my strengths. Let me tell you what's, what's going on in their lives. And so I am looking for always men to step forward, not to do everything, but just to do what God's called them to do. So I truly believe that as men go, so goes the life of our society, so goes our church. Men will always be in every culture. Men are the leading indicator, just like stocks have indicators. Men are the, the number one indicator of what will come next in culture. So if men are irresponsible, what comes next in all, this, all society becomes irresponsible. When men throw away their noble biblical call, they throw away their culture also. They throw away their church. Slide number nine says, second key reminder is the male leadership of Genesis did not, is not natural. The male leadership of Genesis is not natural, but it is supernatural with specific responsibilities. There will be a will to obey. There will be work to do. There's a woman to love and care for. If you are a single man, let me tell you, if you are married, that doesn't mean just your family. Okay? It means women. Men, we have an opportunity to love our women appropriately. Married, not married, ours, not ours. When they walk into this, this room, when they walk into this church, when they walk into your business, when they walk around down the streets, we have a tremendous responsibility, a tremendous way of being the noble men that step forward and say, let me care for you and love you. Some ways you can do it. Let me just give you a real small example. An example of that would be um, never make yourself unsafe. Never be in a situation where it's just you and a gal. Now, most likely, you're an honorable person. You won't, there won't be anything that goes on. But at the same time, oftentimes, we give safety is just a third person. So before I leave this church, if I have to go someplace, I don't meet a gal out there by myself. I, I, just, I don't drive there with, with the gal by myself. I ride with someone else. Now, who I'm protecting is my family. My wife can interrupt me any time. 
That's, that's safety. That's protection. So when someone is meeting with me, I say, excuse me, it's my wife. She can interrupt me any time. It's accountability for me. It's safety for her. And so we do these things that we simply care for. We have a, a will to obey, a work to do, and women to love and care for. When we say supernatural, supernatural is created by listening and trusting God. Supernatural is this, men, simply listening and trusting God. Now what God gives us is a paraclete. He gives us the Holy Spirit who comforts us, who empowers us, who gives us strength to carry out those things that God has told us and gives us the ability to carry those out so you're not left alone. We're talking about not talking about type A personalities here, okay? We're not talking about the guys who take charge only. These are not talking about just the natural-born leaders. There are some of you here who are type A. There are some of you here who are natural leaders. Bless you. Praise God for you. I'm excited for you. But that does not make you an alpha male. What makes you an alpha male is a person who simply surrenders their life to God and says, God, I will listen and I will obey. And I will carry that out wherever, wherever I am. And so those things is what makes you. The, the Isaiah passage says, somebody take charge here. Men, please step forward. A real man says, hey, uh, uh, with God's help, I'll accept these responsibilities. Slide nine. A will to obey, a will to do, women to love and care for. This is simply the roles of a man, roles of a husband, roles of a father, roles of a church, roles of every man in every part. Any man here can step forward and say, with God's help, I'll fulfill these three responsibilities. And by stepping forward, you've taken on a noble calling of masculine leadership by simply doing that. My dad will never be noticed in this world as anyone great, but he's pretty great in my eyes because he has done this. He's pretty unbelievable in all four of us boys' lives because he has done this. He is not flashy. In fact, he was a pastor for, uh, for 20-some years. Oftentimes we said we, we didn't need a recording of him speaking because he stuttered and we got it twice the first time. And so we didn't need that. He was not a good communicator. His thoughts were not necessarily real clear. But my dad lived at every church that we were involved in. Now these churches were smaller than this congregation right here. Okay? So these churches of 20, 30, 40 grew every time, not out of his great preaching oratories of great abilities, but his willingness to be involved and engaged in men's lives. You want to see something grow? Then let your manhood water it. It will grow. Let your manhood put shine, sunshine on that. Let it grow. And when you do those things at your workplace, when you do that at your church, and your Sunday school class, things grow every time. Slide 10. The first key objective is, though, that male leadership is, is cultural. There's excuses that come out against this. And first, first key objection is this. Male leadership is cultural, not creational. People will say it's a myth. It is just made up so that men can be the oppressive leaders and some men have done just that. In a gregarian society that, many, that we came from a few generations ago, it was needed. Strength was important and critical. Oftentimes today, strength, physical strength is not noticed or not needed as much. And so uh, we, we now have a, a, a thing. They said, oh, that was just the way it was needed for that time. Strength of the man, the ability for this to happen, is not needed any longer. <coughs> and some men have done just that. It is not, uh, this is not the idea of oppressive leadership. Why do the New Testament writers go back to creation, though, to make the point of male leadership? Look at that. Let's, let's look at a couple slides here. Every time that, the, that we say, what are men supposed to be, it goes back all the way to creation. This is not a myth. This was started correctly back in Genesis, okay? It wasn't something made up. We look back and go, mm, how can I be a man? I wonder, I'll make this up. 
No, it was, it was made this way. Each time a New Testament does this. Let's look at a couple of these passages. In slide 11 says in, in 1 Corinthians 11:18, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. For the man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. 1 Corinthians 11, 8. So very specifically, those two passages take us back. Where does this come from? It's not a myth back in Genesis. It goes back in the New Testament. goes directly back there. That's what we're supposed to go back to is the beginning. Why do they go back to Genesis? This is the way God designed it, isn't it? Not a harsh rulership, but a true, noble, spiritual, and social leader. An additional point. When Jesus was on earth, why do you think he chose 12 men? Why did he choose 12 men? In the 20th century, there have been three major attempts to prove that male leadership was cultural and not creational. Listen to these three. Communism. Everyone holds all things in common. Women have universal daycare. Religion was outlawed. It was oppressive. Abortion was made on demand. And everyone went in the workplace as an equal. But the time, by the time the communist walls fell down, the most patriarchal societies on earth was communism. The harshest male rulers in society were communists. There was another experiment. In the mid-1940s uh, uh, and 50s, a social experiment called the Israeli kibbutz, uh, the communes, were tried. General, gender roles were outlawed. Common place to raise children was, was formed. Men and women did everything equally. After a few, few years, the men started leaving the kibbutz in the traditional way. Why? The women wanted them to. The women rebelled against it. They said, no way. You guys are horrible when you try to do our role. Man, we're horrible when we try to do your role. There's something about how we're made that is different. The third society, the social experiment, is happening here in America and is presently going on. It's called feminism. In feminism, it's that everybody now is going to, not going to be the same, not equal, but they're going to be the same. Okay? So now we're going to make sure everybody is the same. Not equal, but same. The trend today is for women to go back to the home, though. The women desperately want to be involved in what makes a woman a woman. In fact, our seminaries have even placed courses on this that as women go into seminary, they say, we want to be women. So we want courses on this. We want biblical womanhood to be lifted up. And so the women are asking for these courses to take place. They want their husbands to take the more leadership at home, both spiritually and socially. The great proponents of the sameness today are not women. Listen to this. The ones who are behind feminism are men who refuse to accept God's given responsibility not the women behind it. If men simply said, no way, I'm going I'm I'm to take charge. I'm going to help you here. I'm going to take the responsibility. You don't have to, honey. Let me do that. Let me, if the kids are, are causing problems, let me tell you, you're heroes here. Let me help you out with those kids. You've been with them all day long. Let me get involved with that. Let me get involved with what's going on in, in the lives around us. And so we take on responsibility, but it's the men who refuse to accept this. Slide 12. The second key objection his male leadership is cultural, not creational, but male leadership is a result of the fall, not a result of God's design. It's kind of a byproduct. It just kind of happens because there was a fall, sin took place, and so this happens. Well, the uh, verse used oftentimes comes from Galatians 3.28, but the point of that verse, which is up there, is that salvation is equal for male and female. It is not a, an idea of roles. The, the scripture is clear. Male and female are not the same. They are not in physical form and they are not in function. There's a great a, a bit of study that's been going on here, and they've come up to this great conclusion. Women and men are different. Wow. That, 
took them a lot of science to look at that. Look, it took them a long time to, but now it's coming out more and more. And said, there's something different uniquely. We are physically different. We are functionally different. Unless men step forward to be real men, our society will suffer on it. Let's make this last point about Genesis. If there were two men that could look to define manhood, it'd be these two men, okay? The Adam of Genesis and the Adam of the New Testament, Jesus Christ. There are two men that do that. Two men, two masculine identities that we can look at in Scripture. Two people who appear above all the rest of mankind. Two people who take a step up. One is the Adam of Genesis. The other one is the Adam of the New Testament, Jesus Christ. Every man in this room walks in the shadow of these two premier men. They are the captains of humanity. They're the leaders of it. They give us example. We're one, and we're under that shadow, or the other, and we're under that shadow. Theologian Herman, I don't know how to say his last name, said, Adam and Christ stand against each other as two great figures at the entrance of two worlds, two creations, the old and the new. And in their actions and fates lie the decisions for all who belong to them because all men are comprehended in them. Every man shares the heritage of one or both of these men. Let's look at the next slide. Part B in your, in your handout there. Two men, two identities. Adam and Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 45 and 49, we'll look at in just a minute. And then also these men are, two, are leaders of two distinct spiritual destinies for all man, humanity. These men are leaders of two distinct spiritual destinies. Where are you going determines who you follow. And so as you follow Adam of the Genesis, or as you follow Adam of the New Testament, Jesus Christ, it will determine who you are. Let's look at Romans 5, 17 and 19. This is one of the great statements of Scripture to the lost world. Uh, let me see, I, do I have it there? Yeah. For if by transgression of one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in the life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression, they resulted condemnation for all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, these resulted justification of life to all men. For as though the one, uh, through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many have been made righteous. This is one of the greatest statements of Scripture to a lost world. There's hope. There's hope that through one man, sin entered the world. Through one man, righteousness entered the world. Through one man, masculinity was lost. Through one man, masculinity was found. Look at letter C there. Slide 20. Two men, two identities. Adam and Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 45-49. These men are leaders of two distinct, uh, distinct spiritualities. Destinies, Romans 5, 17, 19. And these men are leaders of two distinct masculine destinies of all humanity. Let's look back now at, at 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a, a life-giving spirit. However, the, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from earth, earthy. We shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Note the word earthy. The first man was earthy, slide 22. His life was set on a natural course. It was a natural course based on personal instinct, human reason, and reaction, and not revelation. It's based upon natural course. 
This is your natural instinct. This is your natural reason. This is your natural reaction, not revelation, that draws life from others. Remember how Adam did this? He's sitting there with Eve. Remember that? She, when, he, when, Adam, when Eve takes the fruit, she eats of it. Where's Adam? Alongside of you, is how many of the scriptures say. With her is how the scripture says. But he was there. He was watching. And he said this question in his mind. If she eats and she doesn't die, I win. If she eats and she dies, I don't have to take responsibility. So Adam, in his passivity, uses his wife as a shield and takes life from her. Without transcendent meaning, Adam is not living for eternity. He is living for himself and for the now. This life only, now, mere existence. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you might die. The fatalistic idea that life is only what we see and have presently. There's not something greater. There's not a trumpet that blows, that calls us to come be in heaven. There's not eternity to worry about. There's not any kind of judgment to happen. We are simply now. Slide 23. Let's look at the second Adam, his life. He was set on a heavenly course, wasn't he? The kingdom to come. His sights were on the day to come. The, the, there was something beyond that he looked forward to. He saw what was happening here. He was engaged in that world, but his gaze was set beyond that. He helped him was engaged, but his gaze was beyond it. He was yielded to revelation, not personal instinct, not human reason or reaction, and not by just bread alone, was he? He had the Word of God, something that transcended life, that empowers others. He was able to empower. He did not come to serve, but to be, ser- uh, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life away for others. This kind of man leaves others empowered. It encourages them. They get. He gives. They receive. He gives away. And so this idea of empowering others, encouraging them to do the things of God, full of transcendent meaning, isn't he? He lived for the kingdom to come. And he is a life-giving spirit. Let me say this statement. You can write this down. Boys take, men give life. Boys take. Men give their lives away. Slide 25. Adam's manhood became conventional manhood, which focuses on these things. Here's what we tend to focus on with each other. Here's what we tend to focus on in our own lives if we're under the shadow of the first Adam. What a man does. What you do is more important than who you are. That's what conventional wisdom says. That's what the conventional manhood says. Competition with other men. Can I outdo you? Can I get the better grade? Can I get the higher promotion? Can I get something that was a competition that I'm against, and I'm against, I'm running against you. I'm trying to get on top of you and push you down so I can raise myself up. Conventional manhood is very temporal, short-lived, short-sighted. Personal rewards are critical to the conventional man. His focus on himself is focused on success. Now, success has to be defined here at this point. It is conventional manhood is what is taught by small-minded, earthly, focused men. Sometimes they were coaches and sometimes they were business leaders. Someday you, you uh, look at your life and you say, what was I collecting all this stuff for? It may hit you a midlife crisis. 
It may hit you at the end of your life. I have all this money, but I'm grumpy. I'm, I have an attitude. I, why do I have all this grumpiness if I have all this money? If I have all these things, why didn't that satisfy? The man that has a, a wake of human debris strung throughout his life looks back and says, look at my kids and look at the mess. Look at the churches that I've been involved with. Look at the, the, the work I've done. And look at the messes of relationships I have. Conventional manhood is not a pretty sight. Slide 26. Jesus' manhood becomes authentic manhood, though. It's authentic manhood, which focuses on these things. Here's what authentic manhood looks like. This is what we can do if we lived under the shadow or live in a sense the grasp of, if we lived as a, re, as a regenerated person, a transformed person. We call in Scripture a Christian. We call him a new creation. Here's what this can be. What a man is. What's most important is what you are. What he does is only a tool of conversation to find who he is. What is his character? What are his values? What does he put his time into? What does he believe? Community with other men is critical. Competing is a part of life, but only, but not the focus of life. Competition or competing is not greater than community. When we play sports and do things, it is more important to be thinking of the relationship. Hmm, is that call all that critical? Is this situation that... Mm, I mean, I, I love competition. I love to get involved in there. Boy, I wrestle with those things. But oftentimes I, I have to really think about this and go, you know what? Relax. Who cares? Who cares about that play? Who cares about that situation? And later on I kind of say, you know what? This community of men, this community of people is more important than the competition. See, Jesus lived with a transcendent purpose, not a temporal power. He gave his power away. He lived with a temporal purpose, a transcendent purpose. He had eternal rewards, not personal rewards. Jesus never wrote a book, never traveled more, more than in one set of point seventy miles in any direction. He never had an army. He was never given a title. He was, never, he was in fact, his greatest title was he was a, he was born in Nazareth and he was a carpenter. Not two things you lift up with, with, with folks. And so he was not looking for that. He had others in mind. It's amazing stories if you look just at the times in Scripture. Seventy-eight times in Scripture it says that Jesus saw, and every time he saw. Okay, just a, he looked at them, he saw, he had the, the man stand up so all could see. Each one of those times, he is, he is focused off of himself and onto them. The widow woman of Nain is in the middle of a funeral. He doesn't look at himself, he looks at her. She's the greatest person in need. Instead of having, he says he has a multitude of people with him. There's a crowd coming down with the, with the, with the funeral. But he looks through all of that and he sees her. He then goes and realizes her greatest need. And he goes and he touches the son's uh, 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 coffin. And as he touches that, the boy sits up. And as he sits up, Jesus doesn't stop and say, see what I did? Instead, he takes the boy and he gives him back to his mother. And then you know what happens next? He walks away. He's a person in need. He's focused on her. And at that point, he gives her greatest need back to her. He says, here's your son. And he walks away. And the people all were amazed by that significance. Jesus' authentic manhood gives significance. When you look back at your life and you give your life away, as God says in authentic manhood, what you will find is you will be significant for what you've given. Remember that one of these two atoms defines you. Which will you choose? Manhood of darkness or manhood of light? Manhood of death or the manhood of life? So let's press these two atoms just together and let's see the first part of the manhood definition. Slide 27. 
the defining difference. The first Adam fell into passivity. The second Adam, Christ, rejected passivity. I told you that my dad struggled with this one area. My mom, I love, and she is a great lady. She's verbal. She's active. She is an unbelievable servant. I mean, she is a hard-working person. As my dad got older, and when us three, three of us that are older than my youngest brother, seven years younger than me, as his three older boys, we knew this. Mom may say whatever she might. Dad comes home, and we do whatever he says. You know, We run around the house with her chasing with the flyswatter, ah, and just chaos kind of thing. Dad came home. He said, son, you sit down here. What did we do? We went down. We sat immediately. Yes, sir. And my mom would say, how do you do that? Well, I don't know. I just do. I mean, he didn't, he didn't even recognize. Now, he had big old Popeye arms, and he also had a pretty good belt. A few other things that maybe motivated them. <laughs> but there was aspects in which when Dad came home, there was no question. Mom could say whatever she'd like. But when Dad came home, we listened. Okay? There's something about that. Now, as, my, my, as we all, the three older boys, got left home, my mom got a little more aggressive. She went through some of her, her tough times in her life. Uh, my dad then, instead of challenging that and, and going against that, he became more passive. He just let her rule. My youngest brother said I had two, I had two sets of families. I had the families with all, all of us there, and I had the family alone. And the family alone I did not like, because the family alone was my dad stepped out of the picture. Now, later on, Dad sits back in the picture, realizes his mistake on some of those things, steps back in and said, wait a second, we're going to get this all taken care of, and step back in the picture. Now, I'm going to tell you, my brother has that wound and has that hurt, but Dad stepped away. Passivity for many of us is not a condition of our age. It's our willingness to be involved. It's not age that does that. It's our willingness to be involved. The Adam of Genesis was given three things to do, remember? He had a will to obey, a work to do, a woman to love and care for. But the Adam of Genesis reeks of passivity. Look at the passage. Look at Genesis 3.6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make it wise, she took from the fruit and ate, and she gave also her husband who was with her, and he ate. Where is the man? He is with her. What jumps off the page is Adam did nothing. Often we just do the same, don't we? Just do something. Get involved. You may have not have the words right now, but say, you know, this needs to stop. Oftentimes, my dad would oftentimes, when there would be a little fuss going on in the house, he'd say, stop. Son, you go there. Son, you go there. We're going to stop this right now. He didn't know what to do. He was still thinking. I found out later. He was still trying to figure things out. Sometimes he'd be angry with us and say, son, you go sit in your room and let me think about it for a little bit, and you need to be thinking about it. When I come in that room, you better tell me why I sent you to this room. If you can't tell me, then I'll give you something to think about, okay? And I'll come back again, and I'll ask you, what do you think you're in this room for? And so a part of that was him just settling that whole thing down and doing something. It's passivity that sweeps across us as men, isn't it? It's passivity. And oftentimes, it is one of those things that just overwhelms us. We don't know what to do, so we do nothing get involved. I can give you some great places to get involved. Your Bible study class. Just get involved in it. Get involved in the community. These tables. Don't sit back at this table. Get engaged in the table. If men aren't here, don't be passive. Call. Give them a holler. Hey, you know, I missed you. I don't know what's going on. I'm not judging you. I just miss you. Come on and be involved. There's been some great stuff taught. In fact, let's get a cup of coffee. We'll talk about last week. Let's talk about that. Let me tell you what happened in my life when I heard this. And so we get involved. We do something. Often the great businessmen, 
the great people who do great things in society, when they get home, though, they become wimps. They become passive. The second Adam, Jesus, did just the opposite. Jesus rejected passivity. Slide 29. Although he exists in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself to take the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Boy, you talk about a man's man. Let me take, the, let me take this on. Let me take whatever is heaped. God, I trust you. I rely upon you. Whatever you need to do, I humble myself and I place myself and I will do whatever you call me to do. The defining difference, the first Adam fell into passivity. The second Adam rejected passivity. See, real men reject social and spiritual passivity. First part of your definition is this. Real men reject passivity and step forward and say, I will. See, Adam in the garden looked like a man but he was really just a boy. And when you look at the manger of Jesus, you look at what you think is a boy, but in essence, he is a man. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your great love for us. Thanks for your kindness, that even though oftentimes we act like boys, you put your arms around us and say, come follow me. Come, come be a man with me. Come join me. I will not leave you alone. I will not forsake you. And so, Father, let us trust you. Let us rely upon you. Father, may we live in the shadow of the new Adam, and not the old. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.